Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. All right, it's recording. We're doing it? Okay. (laughs) So uh, um, today we're going to talk about replacing petroleum with people. And this is uh, a a chapter from the up-and-coming book, Building a Better World in Your Backyard Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys. And uh, and so we just, in fact, today we worked on writing the conclusion. Um, this is uh, uh, not the conclusion. This is something we probably wrote about, I mean, I'm feeling like five months ago we wrote this. Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's quite a while ago. And uh, what we did was, is for all of our Patreon supporters that had supported our podcast Patreon for more than $100 for uh, uh for life, um, uh, so that means like over because I think this my Patreon thing has been going for like three or four years now, and so then some people just put in a dollar, you know, over and over and over again, um, and then eventually it all added up, and and uh, um, so anyway, we sent out about fifteen emails, uh, and uh, to say go ahead and join. So they might be joining us here in a little bit. I already got an email back from one person who said. I am not qualified to be in a podcast, <laughs> so I will not be attending. And so, uh, okay, all right. Well, I don't feel like I'm really qualified either most of the time, So, uh, but I make them anyway, and people seem to like it. So uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm confused. Yeah, right. I was like, you don't have a microphone. You don't have a telephone. Well, I don't know. I mean, I do. I I feel like I have a, a mountain. In order for all of the things to work in my head, with systems feeding systems feeding systems, there's a lot of little details, and so I I'm glad for the opportunity to share all of these details. And so there have been times when there have been people here at my house, and I have talked to them. And um, they listened to all of the podcasts. And um, uh, sometimes people listen to all the podcasts, and it's still, you know, like like all of the dots have not yet been connected yet. Right. And so then um, they'll be full of questions like, well, well, why that? Why this? And why this other thing? And there'll be bits that I have not yet poured into a podcast. Yep. And so I think that part of it is, is like, okay, they haven't connected those dots and they kind of feel like they don't want people to know that they haven't connected those dots. Fair and that, that, yeah. And um, at the same time, I kind of feel like there have to be a bunch of dots that I haven't connected yet. I know that um, one time the Discovery Channel was out here and – and uh, so then they had the the camera and the director and 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 they sat me on a stump out in the middle of the woods and they said, 
tell us what your position is on toilet paper. <laughs> and I don't know why they got so fixated on this toilet paper, but I kept trying to say, like, I have not done the research on on toilet paper and the alternatives. And they said uh, – and they just kept asking the toilet paper question over and over again. And finally I said, boy, I sure hope somebody has it all sorted out because I don't. And, and, um, and that's the clip they used. I bet. Well, no, they, they used nothing. Right. They went away. They just burned up days of our lives here. Um, and then many more days of my life, like talking to them before and after. And, you know, anyway, what a what a mess! And in the end, I feel glad that we didn't work something out because the people that they did work something out with, they did everything they could to kind of destroy their lives on video. You know, like let's let's film it. And then I I later uh, met Mick Dodge, who did a three year dance with some big cable network, and he was telling me like it was it was an awful mess. Mm-hmm. And and it was just constantly they're trying to get me to do stuff that I am not going to do. And then they uh, needed more drama, so then they would, like, go and tell the authorities crazy shit to get the authorities to come out and try and fuck with me enough to make something worth putting on video. And it's like it just – it was, you know, getting into a relationship with them. I mean, there was the upsides, and then there's – but the downsides outweighed the upsides. Yeah. And um and the the thing that you know he said was like one of the worst things is that pretty much everybody there everybody involved in the project was getting paid more than him. He was paid peanuts. And so, you know, the interns were getting paid more than he was. And so I don't know, I just kind of feel like that whole thing is 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 an awful mess. All right. The important thing is, is that I feel like most of the stuff that I ever talk about is pretty basic, simple stuff. And then, and then there'll be somebody sitting at my table and they'll say a thing and I'll be like, now I understand why people value what I say in a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I, I get it now. I get it now. So like half the time I feel like I'm nothing special. I've got nothing important to say. And then the other half of the time, I kind of feel like, oh, <laughs> I, I get it, I get it. I, I feel like almost anybody could, 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 uh, you know, turn on a microphone and 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 make a podcast. And oh, wait, <laughs> wow, there's a lot of podcasts out there. Um, so I, I'm not sure. I'm sure most of them are far better than anything that that I could make. But speaking of which, now I'm rambling on. You know. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Should we get started? Should we do it? Let's go for it. All right. The format is I'm going to read the chapter as we have it now. We would very much like to get feedback from the pod people. Um, And uh, uh, is this chapter, does it currently appear in any place in whole right now? Uh, No. Not in any place that is publicly available. Okay, so like, um, I know we've got some in the pie forum. So people that have gotten a piece of Permi's pie, then, then they can get it. I know we've got some chapters 
in the dailyish forum. So it's a private forum just for people who are subscribed to the dailyish email. And then we've got some chapters that are in the secret inner circle forum, and that's for people that have uh, supported my past Kickstarters. So those are three places that are public but not public. Right. And I, okay. I'm just double-checking, but I don't think it is in any of those. Nope, it's not. Okay, okay. So then um, me reading this chapter into this podcast will be the only copy until the book comes out. That's right. Yeah, okay. All right, um, uh, here we go. Replacing Petroleum with People. Someone once asked me how I would do permaculture with 20,000 acres of raw land. At the time, I had less than five minutes to convey my thoughts. Here is my answer now with a bit of polish. Okay, I remember this guy, and it was in 2012, and I've been asked similar questions different times, but when I when I wrote this chapter, I'm thinking about this guy. It was a 2012, it was a Sepp Holzer event, and, and Sepp Holzer said, uh, okay, we're all going to go over there now. And so we're all in a big mob, and we're walking over wherever Sepp is telling us to walk. And just as we started to walk, this guy comes to me, and he has 20,000 acres of land. And I don't think he has it. I think he is being hired to be the manager of this 20,000 acres. And he's being asked to make it profitable based on permaculture values. And so, like, what is what is the way to do that? Right. Now, of course, Sepp Holzer has 110 acres. <clears throat> and... Um, I mean, basically, it's it's not like it's farmland. It's like it is a garden that started off with three acres, and then it grew to five acres, and it grew to ten acres, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew. And, it grew. and on top of that, it was dry land, no water running on it anywhere, and and very steep land in the Alps, and all conifer trees. And and when he was a kid, then his mom had a little garden next to the house, and that was it for garden space. And then, of course, Sepp tells the stories about being seven years old and making his first little pond-like thing and putting fish in it. Yeah, it's a cool story. And and so the 110 acres... And, and and in he's expanded. Like some of his neighbors are like, I love what you did with your land. You are welcome to continue your efforts on my land if you like. And he has. Um and and some of the movies that are available are like, Look over there. That's where I have sepified more land. And then other movies are like, Look at this place. This is somebody else's place and I have sepified it. And, uh, and of course now he's moved on to the Holzerhof, uh, um, this, this other piece of land, but <clears throat> it's, it's not farming. It's not agriculture. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's gardening on a large scale. So, and that's pretty much in a way my answers, but here I'm going to read for you the actual thing that I wrote. Let's start by looking at the conventional or even conventional organic path. 
20,000 acres is 31.25 square miles. A chunk of land of that size might include some mountains and some valleys. The conventional approach would be to run cattle on the mountains and then drain the swamps and convert the valleys to cropland. Converting raw land to productive land takes time. Maybe a team of 30 or 40 people will clear the land, remove all the stumps, drain the swamps, work the soil, and build up fences to make it suitable for conventional agriculture. It might take three years to get the first 1,000 acres from raw land to production. In 10 years, all 20,000 acres are productive. Then it will be possible to drop down to 20 people. And I keep putting the word productive in quotes because, of course, the land is productive as is. Right. Um, at the same time, I kind of feel like uh, humans plus nature can make land more productive. And so nature does a form of productivity that is um, – it's it's because I keep kind of – I try to say that a permi, a permi romances nature, and then when nature is romance, nature produces so much more. I kind of feel like most conventional agriculture is a little bit like, okay, putting your boot on the throat of nature. Right. And so I will force you to do what you do my way. And that's going to be um, – the more conventional approach or even the organic, the conventional organic approach. <clears throat> Those people are going to need uh, a place to stay. So there's an upfront investment in housing for 20 to 40 people. And then there's an upfront investment of roughly $10 million on equipment and $10 million on infrastructure, such as machine sheds, grain bins, and irrigation systems. With such large startup costs, it's going to take a while to break even, especially when you consider the need to cover the significant annual costs that come with conventional ag. Seed, petroleum-based fuel, petroleum-based fertilizer, petroleum-based pesticides, energy for pumping water, etc. Then it's time to play the commodity farming game and mass-produce three to nine different products. If a few of those products have a rough year in the field or on the market, so do you. Plus, if you're hungry, you can't just walk into your field and grab a meal. You still need to go to a grocery store, and you have to spend most of your time with loud, smelly, petroleum-powered machinery. So when I was young... Uh, I worked on, uh, so I'm not reading from the thing now. <laughs> I'm recalling. <laughs> I, I worked for the B.L. Davis Ranch, uh, and that was in northeastern Oregon around uh, the Pendleton area, kind of north of the Pendleton area between Pendleton and Walla Walla, Washington, in that region. And uh, I remember, like, driving a pea stripper, a kind of a, uh, a piece of equipment for harvesting peas in mass from monocrops. Okay. 
And uh, I remember the pay was something like three seventy-five an hour and all the peas you can eat. <laughs> Which um, uh, most of the people that worked there said that they that after one day of working there, they could not eat peas the rest of their lives. Um, part of it is is that you know it's a it's a giant piece of equipment that is uh, a massive hydraulic thing and um, it's got a, a huge diesel engine that powers all the hydraulics and so it's a loud uh, thing and it runs hot and so then um, uh, the the device would pull up pea vines and then it had a big thing in the back that looked kind of like a clothes dryer and so then the vines and the pods would be dropped into this clothes dryer thing that had these paddles in it that would rotate. And then the paddles would hit the, the peas and the vines, and then the peas would come out, and then they would fall through the little holes in the clothes dryer, the little clothes dryer thing. And then the pods and the vines would eventually work their way out the back end of this contraption. And then all the peas would get stored in a hopper up near the driver so the driver could check to see do I have a full load of peas yet, in which case I need to signal for the truck to come and I'll offload my peas onto the truck. Um, and then, of course, uh, as the, the thing would beat the vines and the pods and everything, then there would get to be juicy bits of pea plants all over everything. And then the juicy bits would hit the hot bits and kind of fry, <laughs> oh. and it would make this particular scent. <laughs> and it, it's it's no one no one has ever prepared peas intentionally this way before. Imagine like somebody put peas in a pot, and then they put it on the burner, and they didn't put water in it, <laughs> and walk, and then. And they walked away and accidentally forgot about it. And and then you accidentally had, like, peas on fire at some point <laughs> or or just, like, fried peas to the point that they turned into one giant crust of, of pea slime. That's what the smell was. And so um, uh, you can have all the peas you can eat. And I ate them, no problem. Um uh, and of course, you only want to eat so many peas where you get kind of, you know, tired of peas. And, uh, we did have some people that would come with buckets and fill a five gallon bucket with, with peas and go and like go home and can them or freeze them or something. So there were some people that worked there that did that. But most people were just like, Oh, I just, I can't stand the idea of anybody in the world eating peas after working here. But I don't know. Didn't I, I I'm fine with eating peas. Give me peas. I'm okay. Um, <clears throat> All right. The the moral of the story is is that a lot of times the places that grow our food are referred to as food deserts. They'll grow like just corn and soybeans, and it's field corn. So it's the kind of corn for making cornbread, not sweet corn. Although you can take field corn and eat it like sweet corn, it just doesn't uh, it doesn't taste as good as sweet corn. Right. And how much corn can you eat in one sitting, really? 
<laughs> well, I think I think what we've proven is that people can eat a lot of corn at every meal because nearly everything contains huge quantities of corn. But not of in course, corn form. Not in, you know, not off the cob kind of. That, oh, yeah. Oh, true. True, true, true. They're, they're eating it as high fructose corn syrup um, or, you know, Corn chips, corn, corn this, corn that. It's, 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 there's, I think somebody said that like 70% of American food contains corn in one form or another. Yeah. And, and the reason why is that it's so heavily subsidized. Um, I mean, it's, it's like basically we've kind of turned corn into the stuff that you convert petroleum, which is our topic for today, converting petroleum into, um, uh, a food-like substance. By the way, I heard a fascinating statistic about two weeks ago. Apparently, and and I'm not I, and I kind of I challenged it a little bit to kind of get a little bit more details. But apparently, the petroleum industry is currently subsidized to the tune of five trillion dollars per year, and that's just the United States. Five trillion dollars. Wow. And so, um, basically, if there was no subsidy whatsoever, then gasoline would cost about $12 a gallon right now. Yeah, I think the number up here is if we had no subsidies, gas would be $14 a liter. Okay. Now, um, you're in Canada. And so $14 a liter, so that would make it, so that one of our gallons, which is about four times bigger, that would be like, wow, 60 bucks, 55 bucks, something like that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what I heard. And maybe it was a while ago, so maybe I'm remembering it wrong. But even if it's $14 a gallon, that is a lot more expensive than what we pay now. Yeah. Directly at the pump. Yeah. And that's, and that's just assuming, you know, one kind of subsidy. Cause the next thing is, is that of course, you know, we have so much corn for so cheap because the petroleum fertilizers and then all of the other petroleum things involved in corn are, are so dramatically subsidized. But then on top of that, corn itself, just, just corn. Just the direct subsidy for corn is an 80% subsidy. And so it's kind of like it's, it's subsidized at least twice. And, and that's, so those, and that's just the, the, I can't help but think that there's going to be a whole bunch of other subsidies on top of that, that like, you know, we haven't even started to figure in yet. Somebody could probably do some kind of study and say corn is subsidized like 98%. You know, but okay. Um, that's a that's a lot of subsidy, and so um, uh, this is it. Kind of comes back to that thing I said, like uh, what was it? Like uh, it must have been seven years ago on a podcast where I was. We were doing the review of Farmageddon, and um, I pointed out that if you took away the CAMAG subsidy and the organic ag penalty. The consumer would find that uh, uh, chemag food costs four times more than organic food. 
and um, and it's kind of like that's that's the world we live in, and it, it just and it's like, well, how did we we get here? And it's kind of like because um, we kind of think that it's like, don't we want organic? If organic food costs less, shouldn't it cost less? <laughs> you would and, think so. And and it's like that we wouldn't want to eat the, the chemag food because we want we want we prefer the organic ag food. But all right. <clears throat> I am now choosing to continue on with reading this chapter. Okay. Bill Mollison made it pretty clear that a big part of permaculture is replacing petroleum with people. If I had 20,000 acres, I would divide it into 200-acre chunks. On each 200-acre chunk, I would select one person who would be in charge and then sprinkle in 12 to 30 people that would live there and work the permaculture system. Rather than a monocrop focus, this would be a massively distributed overlapping polyculture system. And rather than the 20,000 acres having one beekeeper managing 10,000 hives, there would be 500 beekeepers managing 3 to 30 hives each. Instead of one person doing nothing but beekeeping, each person would manage 20 to 60 different small businesses. Yeah, and uh, just to comment on that last part, I think uh, some people hear 20 to 60 different small businesses, you're nuts because they think about, like, how much work it is to start one business, right? Yeah, running businesses isn't easy. Um, and they think you're going to do that 20 to 60 different times, but it's, yeah, they work together in a different way. It's not like you're setting up 20 to 60 entirely separate and independent businesses. If you go to like the farmer's market, there'll be like a booth there and they have like 30 different kinds of food. And so I guess I'm kind of thinking like that's 30 different, businessy things. And then it's possible that it's like we wanted to bring 35 different kinds of food, but there's comedy with five of them, and so we only brought 30 because, you know, that's what we have. Um, <clears throat> so I, I guess, your yes, your point is a very good one. And, and maybe, you know, we should put it a little blip in the book right here and rather than say small rather than small businesses it should be like small crops and so it doesn't seem like it's you know so like like oh now i got to do the accounting for all these different businesses yeah so So just a clarification on that and maybe we'll change that up in the book but we can keep uh, keep going for now Okay, here again, it's going to take some time to get this system going. For the first year, I would start off by selecting 10 of the 100 plots, then select leaders for those plots and begin constructing housing for 100 people. On top of that, some people would be focused on making five acres on each plot into a super awesome permaculture garden. It's not much and not enough to sell, 
but it will provide some of the food for the people working on the land. And part of permaculture is feed the people on the land first. In three years, there might be 200 people with the first 50 acres on each plot producing something. After 10 years, 2,000 people and all 200 acres of each plot are productive, except maybe for the newest plots to be started, which are on their way. The food produced from the 20,000 acres would first feed the roughly 2,000 people who are now living there. And since 2,000 people can manage the system much more intensively than a few people with big machines, there would still be a bunch of food left to sell. For an apples-to-apples comparison, the whole system could still be set up for commodity farming. Now, of course, I don't, I, I wish to advocate against being involved in a commodity farming system. But in order to be able to do the comparison here, let's just do this. But rather than having three to nine products growing as the 30 to 5,000 acre monocrops, the production would be distributed as part of a polyculture over 100 products on 20,000 acres. Then one day a semi-truck would pull up and everyone would bring the extra tomatoes from their plot and load it up. On another day, they would load it up with chickens. And on yet another day, they would load it up with walnuts. If a few products don't do well in the field or on the market each year, it's not a problem. There are still 100 other products to carry the weight. This approach solves one of the biggest problems of small farming, marketing. Most farmers would rather spend their time farming instead of worrying about how they're actually going to sell their products. This is a big reason why so many small farms fail to make money. On the other hand, a 20,000-acre multimillion-dollar permaculture business could easily take the burden of marketing off the shoulders of the farmers. As a bonus, while the potential to outcompete, <clears throat> I'm sorry, <clears throat> as a bonus, while the potential to outcompete conventional ag in the commodity market exists here, there are opportunities that I think could bring in far more money, such as marketing products directly to consumers, value-added products, tourism, resort, and glamping, workshops, weddings and events, fine furniture, crafts, and other woodworking, and many more. Whether they just focus on farming or take on one of these extra ventures to boot. Each person could receive a stable income while also having a beautiful place to live and delicious healthy food to eat. Things might be so good that besides paying for their food and rent, they barely have any living expenses and put aside a bunch of money and savings each year. Maybe someday they'll go buy their own acreage, but things are pretty good where they are. By relying on people to do most of the work with hand tools, we could drastically reduce the amount of, or we could drastically reduce the petroleum footprint 
of our operation. That said, there'd be a few times when petroleum might still be used to accomplish a task, such as using an excavator to build ponds. Once built, the ponds would require no petroleum inputs to maintain, and spreading the amount of petroleum used in construction over the lifetime of the pond, the fuel use would be practically negligible, especially when compared to the annual inputs of ChemAg. The startup cost of the per- of the permaculture system is mostly in housing and the people to implement the system, while equipment and infrastructure costs are a tiny fraction of a conventional system. And we've eliminated the need to buy fuel, fertilizer, pesticides year after year. Rather than pouring money into petroleum, we're investing money in people. The end. So there, there's one chapter out of the book. There it is. And um, when's, when is Tracy going to get the images put in there? It seems like there's lots of opportunity to have images on the, in this chapter. Yeah, I'll have to send her an email and see what's up. Yeah, yeah. All right. <clears throat> well, maybe this was a particularly short podcast. Yeah, it's rare. <laughs> um, any other points we should talk about? Um, as per the usual, it would be great to have feedback. Um, right. So the podcasts are going up real quick nowadays. Um, and so if we could get feedback soon, that'd be great. Yeah. That'd be uh, lovely. We, yeah. I, I can't think of anything else right now that needs to be mentioned. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about replacing petroleum with people, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.